when I've already told you a little bit about that trip we took out to uh, the West Coast. When we were out there, the whole time, we never saw a Chick-fil-A. And this might be salt in the wound because I know the closest Chick-fil-A is, I think, in Alcala. Is that where it is? I'm not sure it is. Where is it? Ocala. I even say it right. I, I don't know. <laughs> where, wherever it is, it has a Chick-fil-A, apparently. Uh, we, ha I, we have probably 20 in Greenville. I'm so sorry about that. But when we got back, we never saw a Chick-fil-A the whole time we were on the West Coast. And when we got back, we flew into Charlotte, and uh, all of our kids said, we want Chick-fil-A. You know, we're on the way home. We flew in at like 8 o'clock, so we stopped to get Chick-fil-A. The way it works in my neck of the woods is Chick-fil-A is so popular, and we have so many of them, they have uh, two lanes in the drive-thru. Not one lane, but two lanes, and you order, and then that person goes, and you go, and then that person goes, and you go, and you alternate. Well, this guy ordered, and I ordered at the same time. And uh, we kind of tried to edge each other out, and I was like, he's, he's got a Ford 150, I'll let him go. I had a minivan. So he went in front of me, but the problem was the guy behind him stayed right on his tail. And everybody in South Carolina knows that's not how this works. That guy goes, you go. That guy goes, you go. We're in Chick-fil-A, we're supposed to all be Christians right now. This is how this gig works. And so that guy went, and a long flight across country, we were back, it's the first meal, it's late at night, blah, blah, blah. The guy behind him is not giving me any space. I mean, he's this far from his bumper, and I'm, I mean, we're, we're pretty close to each other. And I'm looking at him, and he's not looking at me. And I'm getting closer and closer, and our cars get about that far away, because I do not want to give up. And finally, I realized I, there's no way he had the leverage on me. There's no way I can get in there. And so I did the Christian thing. I laid on my horn. <laughs> and my wife said to nobody in particular, I guess somebody didn't learn how to share in kindergarten. That's what she said. And I said, well, my pleasure. That's what I said back. We got our meal and then we headed home and on the way home, you know what we talked about on the way home after I repented to the kids and did all that and asked for forgiveness? Uh, on the way home, do you know what we talked about? When could we plan another trip? And what would it be like? And what would we do if we went on another trip? We just finished that trip and we're already thinking about another trip. The 10 days that we had were great, but you know what was even better? The eight months of longing for it the preparing for it, the thinking about it, the looking up the Airbnbs online, that was better than the actual trip in so many ways. Here's what C.S. Lewis says. He says, all joy as distinct from mere pleasure, still more amusement, emphasizes our pilgrim status. It always reminds, beckons, awakens desire. It's never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Our best havings are wantings. Not to get too academic, but uh, Lewis uses a German word, senschucht, which is to long for something is what joy is. You can think joy is collecting your arms around health collecting your arms around money, 
collecting your arms and gaining popularity in high school, collecting your arms and gaining a reputation, collecting your arms around some possession that you wanted. And then the problem is you have to hold on to that and you have to protect that. But what C.S. Lewis teaches us and what the scriptures teach us is all of our best longings is where joy comes from. Our longings, our wantings, our desires And so here's what we talked about, just to catch you up if you weren't here last night and uh, the prior weekend. We're talking about renewing relationships. Life is a life of relationships. God is a God of relationships. And so in that, he does four things. Remember, he initiates, he identifies, he invades, and we have intimacy. That's what we do with him, that's what we do with each other. Yesterday, we talked about, now we have this, this problem, we're in time. And now that we're in time, we have these two poles. We have a pole, like a tightrope walker. We have a pole that helps us feel the, the, the gravitational pull of remembering, not forgetting what Christ has done, not forgetting who we are, not forgetting the stories. And now tonight, we're gonna to talk about the other pole, which keeps that pole in check, which is hoping. And hoping in the future, hoping of what God might do, and hope of the future. That's what we're doing. Today is a sermon, unlike any other sermon, uh, I don't normally preach this way. I normally take one text, but last night I didn't do that. Tonight I'm going to do that. I'm going to use a certain text uh, for each point. Underneath the text of these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And church, here's what I want to call you to. I want, to call, I want to call you to dream again. In this day and age where cynicism prevails in our culture, I want to call you to hope again. I want to call you to imagine again. We sing the song, or at least we used to, our God, our help in ages past and our hope for years to come. There's the last two sermons summarized in a line from a hymn. Here's the first point. Lack of hope makes us short-sighted. Hebrews chapter 10. Uh, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. But recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. I don't want to go over that. Read that again. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison. It's referencing your friends in prison, not just people that are in prison, your friends in prison. And you look at this, friends, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. How un-American is that to accept? You joyfully accepted that these Romans were gonna come in and steal all of your belongings and you gave it up joyfully. See, here's the problem. A lack of hope will make us short-sighted. We think that everything is about the here and now. We live in an instant gratification society. And one of the things that has bugged me the most, if I could just, I don't talk poorly about my church when I'm away from her, right? I don't, I don't do that. So whatever I say about my church, I've already said to her. 
And so one of the things that has bothered me over the last two years as I've tried to pastor Mitchell Road in Greenville is this. I've started to hear from people this theme of martyrdom. Like we're so persecuted and we're so martyred. And I just want to scream, no, you're not. How dare you say that? How dare you say that to the first century Christians? How dare you say that to the Christians in Africa when Boko Haram just took 30 of their girls and they can't find them? How dare you say that to the Christians in Ethiopia when just a couple months ago their church was bombed and 450 people were killed? How dare we say that, that we're so persecuted and we're martyred and we're so fearful of all these things when our friends and our brothers and sisters in North Korea and China are having to meet in private and are getting arrested daily and they can't even find a pastor because they're all getting thrown in prison. Those are the ones being persecuted. We're just a little fearful and we've lost hope. But you read the New Testament and it starts to put it in perspective a glaring perspective because the problem is we're stuck in this next stage mentality. We don't want the longing for heaven. We want the wantings now. We wanna be able to wrap our arms around security and control and all of these things that we so long for, riches, possessions, reputation in high school, whatever it is, we wanna wrap our arms around that and keep that, and we've lost our hope for heaven, and it's made us short-sighted. Randy Alcorn says it this way. He says, nothing is often more misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think that what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen TV, a new car, a cabin in the woods, a condo in Hawaii. Fill in the blank. Like, you have to do the work. Fill in the blank for what you would put there. If one of those didn't hit you, you fill in the blank for what hits you. What we really want is the person that we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing else can satisfy us. Can we go back to the Hebrew slide? Because now I want to read the part and give you the second part of this uh, first point. The lack of hope makes us short-sighted, but what we need is an eschatological realization. That's the second point. What we need is eschatological realization. Now, I know that's a big word, but let me, uh, let me put that in the context. Let me define that. An eschatological realization is this. Eschatological means last times, thinking about the last times. And the realization is we need to realize that we are going to eventually live into the last times. And we need to start viewing our lives that way. And we need to start viewing other people's lives that way. Because you know what it says? For you had compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew. Why could they joyfully accept it? Since they knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence. It's your great reward. Hey, let me ask you this. 
If Christians in this culture where we live in right now, if the Christians were the ones that didn't think chicken little and that everything was burning down to the ground, if the Christians were the ones that said, we have a hope for heaven. Yes, we have desires for how God could redeem this earth. Yes, and we're gonna work to those ends to, for the press, for the justice, for widows, for everybody. We're gonna work to those ends and we're gonna love people and we want a free and safe culture and we want a government that's fair and equitable. We want all of those things. But at the end of the day, we have a hope for a better possession, an abiding one, one that will last. And we have a hope for a reward that we'll receive when we meet Jesus. If we could live with a hope in this culture, would that not be so countercultural that people would come awake to the gospel? Would they not say, I haven't met a person like you. You're hopeful? I, I, haven't, I haven't met a person like you who speaks with such joy and such longing and such what could be, what God could do. I've never met a person like you before. You say, well, I've, I've got a better and a lasting possession. Two quick stories here. Uh, one's intense, one's not, just forewarning. Um, Michael, who is a friend of mine, was 29 when his wife wa walked into his bedroom and shot him. With a 22, it gets worse. And then she walked into the next bedroom and shot his five-year-old son and his four-year-old daughter. Theirs. Shot her own son her own daughter. And then she got in her car and she went up the road uh, about a mile and she turned around and she barreled down the road into their yard, took off her seatbelt and hit the house. She tried to kill herself. And here's the problem. The kids died, Michael lived and she lived. So when Michael woke up in the hospital room, not only did we have to tell him that he's gonna be in the wheelchair for the rest of his life, but we also had to tell him his kids were dead and his wife's going to prison. Michael wasn't a believer at that point, but he had a physical therapist who's this lady in our church, and she would get her hands on him physically and move him around, but secretly she was praying for him, and she healed not only his outsides, but his insides and his soul. And there on the physical therapy table at 29 years old, Michael became a believer. Even with all of that, Michael decided he would become a believer. He started coming to his church. His parents are British, so they would bring him just his mom, not his dad. I would go visit them, and when I would go visit Michael at his house, as soon as I walked in the door, as soon as I walked in the door, she would say, Pastor Andy's here, and his dad would run into the bedroom and slam the door as hard as he could. I mean, shook the whole house. About a year later, the church loved him, loved him, loved him, loved him. He became a believer, like I said, and then the mom became a believer. And then three months ago, his dad became a believer. And Michael said to me the other day, last time I saw him, he said, this is not the life that I wanted, but I get the chance to spend the rest of my life longing for heaven. That's what he told me. I'm gonna spend the rest of my life longing for heaven. All that despair and all of those problems in his heart now is joyful because he's hoping and longing for heaven. My wife's 
grandfather, Dudley, uh, we would call him Dud, which is an awful name for a grandfather, Dud. Uh, He's never, he was a dentist in Indiana. He moved down to Fort Myers. He bought his golf patio home. He did the retired thing, and there he was. We came down. Kate was young at that time. She was uh, small. He's not a Christian. Uh, her grandmother was not a Christian. Neither one of them, Nana or Dud, neither one of them were Christians, but we would come down and visit them. They wanted to meet Kate, so we flew down, and we had Kate. He said, I, I want to take you out into the, uh, the course. I want you to see the course, and so we're going down the course, and we got behind this group, and this group said, go ahead and go through. He said, no, we want to see you hit. They said, go ahead and go through. They said, no, we want to see you hit, and they got into a, like an argument, and he just started cussing, like cuss, cussing, and then he like drove back, we drove back to their patio home and he's sitting in the sunroom there, we're looking out at the course and at that moment this marshal comes around and uh, he's 81 at this point, he's 81 and he says, he's looking for me. And so he goes through the screen door and he goes, and he says, you're looking for me, aren't you? And the marshal is like 65 and he's a big dude. He's like 6'4", six, 6'5", six, Dudley was like 5'9". And so he gets right over to the golf cart like that, and the guy gets out just like this, and then Dudley chests him. He bumps him with his chest. And I'm thinking in my mind, what do I do as the grandson here? What, what do I have? And then Nana, Elizabeth's grandmother, goes, hit him, Dudley. That's what she said. <laughs> Hit him, Dudley. <laughs> I thought, this is ridiculous. Well, I calmed down. I walked out there. We calmed everybody down. He was 81 at the time. When he was 83, he became a believer. Hey, have you given up hope for your friends, for your neighborhood, for your golf buddies, for the people that you... Have you given up, have you given up hope for that kid in high school who bullied you? Have you given up hope for your parents or your son or your prodigal daughter? Have you given up hope for them? Are you so, are you so short-sighted that you think it's all been done and written, the lot's been cast? Are you a closet fatalist? Or can God still work in the heart of an 83-year-old? After he became a believer, we went down and we visited him. I'm not going to say what he said, but we went down and we he said, I'm gonna drive you to the airport. And we drove to the airport and it was a tenuous drive. I called uh, Elizabeth's dad after I said, you gotta take the keys. And so we got to the airport finally, but it was touch or go there for a little bit. And he said, I wanna pray for y'all. <laughs> Never heard him pray before. Didn't even really know what to say. He gathered up, Kate, Elizabeth, me, Elizabeth and I are not closing our eyes. We're just looking at each other going, this is amazing. God decided to work in his life at 83. He changed. I mean, he changed. He said, Father, I just thank you so much that I'm not only their grandparent here, but I'm their grandparent in heaven. And I pray for that SOB that cut me off in traffic. That's what he said. <laughs> but it wasn't the acronym. He, I mean, he said the whole thing. But look, friends, there's a, if you got the hope in the gospel, if you have an eschatological realization, there's no statute of limits on sanctification, right? God's always gonna be changing us. Here's the next point. Lack of hope makes us hard-hearted. 
A lack of hope makes us short-sighted, and a lack of hope will make us hard-hearted. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Can I stop? If you've read scripture for a lot of your life, you know what you need to do at this point of your life? If you've been a Christian for a long time, you need to read it slower. And you need to read it out loud. Because you've gone to this text and look, you've read Romans 8, I don't know how many times. When was the last time you thought about it? Chewed it up, meditated on it. I consider that the sufferings of this time, okay, where are the sufferings? What am I feeling right now? Where am I suffering? Well, whatever it is, it's not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation that was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even though you're Christians, you have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly. Look, if you're a child of God, you know what you have to learn to do? Cry groan. You have to learn how to say, when you watch the news, I don't care what channel it is, this is not the way things are supposed to be. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Kids aren't supposed to die from cancer when they're eight. There's not supposed to be wars. There's not supposed to be rioting in the streets. This is not the way things are supposed to be. It's okay to groan. It's okay to grieve. We don't do it without hope, but it's okay to do those things. I had a guy in my office a couple weeks ago. I've given this advice a lot, and he's talking anger about his wife and anger about all this stuff, his business, and I finally said, who are you angry at? He gave me a whole list. I said, no, you're not. You're angry at God. That's who you're angry at. You're angry that he's not making your life easy. You're angry that he's not uh, answering every wish when you rub the bottle of what you would hope. That's what you're angry at. And so here's what I need you to do. When I'm counseling somebody, I give them homework. And I say, here's what I need you to do. I'm gonna unlock that soccer field and you're gonna go out there and you're gonna give God a piece of your mind. We have a soccer field, an auxiliary field. I've done this a lot of times. They back up to this one house, and people see this happen all the time because I give this advice a lot. I say, go out to that auxiliary field. School's already out of the session. I want you to go to that lower field. Nobody will see you except for that one house, and they know what's going on. Go to that auxiliary field, and I want you to yell. I want you to scream. I want you to give God a piece of I want you to tell him exactly what you think about him. One of two things will happen. You'll either get it all out of your system and then you'll hear him swaddle you with his love like we do with crying babies. You swaddle them up and say, it's okay. I understand. Or he'll strike you dead with lightning. (laughs) 
But either way, you get to be with Jesus. So it's win-win, right? Either way, you're gonna meet him face-to-face or you're gonna meet him in your spirit, but either way, you get to be with him. It's okay to groan. It's okay to groan inwardly. It's okay to say this is not the way it's supposed to be, but if you suppress that, if you don't groan, if you don't cry out, you will become hard-hearted. You'll bottle it all up and you'll become hard-hearted and you'll get angry and you'll get bitter and you'll get cynical and all of that will happen. You can go out and read the Psalms. It happens all the time in the Psalms. But then look at what it says. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, as daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons and daughters. In a a theological way, when are you saved? You have been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. All of those are true biblically. So you are adopted and you will finally feel the fruits of adoption in the new heavens and the new earth. So we need to start living into that. I used to live with a family in Augusta. I lived in their pool house, which was larger than my house just their pool house alone. He retired when he was 40, sold his company for mega, mega millions. They had three biological kids. He said, I'm 40, I'm young, what am I gonna do? So they went to Russia and adopted five kids, all at the same time, a whole family. Can we adopt any of this orphanage? Yes, we, we have this. Does he have a brother? Yes, he has four others. We'll take them all. We'll take the whole lot. We got money, we got resources, we got time, we're young, we'll take all of them. So I was there when they brought them home, those boys, they were scared to death. We had all these, it was a huge mistake. We had all these balloons, we had cake. They'd never seen balloons. They're scared to death, they'd never seen cake. For three to four years, when they would go to the local Publix, they would come back And Madeline would say, okay, show me what's in your pockets. And they would pull out apples, they would pull out bananas, they would pull out, you know, chocolate bars, because they in Russia had never seen that much food. And they couldn't convince their minds when they were five, six, seven, two eight-year-olds and a nine-year-old that they would have food. So they saw it and they just grabbed it. And she had a running tab with Publix where she would just, she'd lay it all out, she'd take a picture of it, she'd send it to the manager and say, just put it on my tab. I'm not even gonna try to fight this right now. They want the food, just let them take the food. And the amazing thing is this, they're stealing candy bars and they don't know that they have trust funds. (laughs) They can't even fathom that. And that's like us too. Groping for the things of this life that we think will give us the joy that we want when we don't know we have a a trust fund in heaven established for us. So here's what we need. We need that gospel prescription because you're hard-hearted, but you need a gospel prescription of being an adopted son or daughter of Christ. And then, look what it says, Then we can be patient, verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I'm not sure I've ever met a person who doesn't need more patience. Have you? Because if you have, I'd like to meet them. 
Everybody needs more patience. How are you going to get it? You're going to get it by hoping for something else, which will give you patience now. Uh, a friend of mine in the church, um, he's probably going to die soon. His, uh, his name is Renato Mancini. He's from Arkansas. I'm kidding. He's not from... A few of you started to get that. And I thought I'd just give it to you for free. He's, uh, I didn't want to work for it. He's, he's from uh, Florence, Italy, born and raised in Italy. Went to the Leonardo da Vinci School of Art. Uh, was in the room when Apollo 13 blew up because he was the illustrator for NASA. That was his job for all of his life. And now he's a member of Mitchell Road. Uh, I, can, I know this church doesn't like soccer. These stories are gonna connect. Because uh, the, the European League Championship was yesterday at the exact same time that y'all planned the service. <laughs> Drove me nuts. My phone was going off the whole time with people texting me. Italy versus England, and it went into overtime, and Italy won in PKs, and if you're interested, and you're not, because you planned a service at the same time. That... <laughs> but when the World Cup happened, I told everybody in my church, there was a, we used to have an evening service at that point, it was at six o'clock, I told everybody in my church, uh, do not, I just got a TiVo, do not remind me, do not tell me who wins this game. I don't have time to watch it, I have, uh, it was Italy versus Spain, and I've got all these appointments, and I do not want to know, and I've got to come to the six o'clock service and preach, and I don't want to know who won the game. I told them that morning, like in the pulpit, nobody talked to me about the game. I walk into the service, Renato Mancini is in the back. He looks at me, he's got a dress shirt on, and then he pulls it open. <laughs> And it's an Italian jersey. And I was like, I, I know who won. I know who won the game. And of course, Italy won. He was so happy about that. You know what I did? I went home and watched the game anyway. I wanted Italy to win, and I loved every minute of it, even though I know they won. You know what Jesus does at the transfiguration? He shows us just a little glimpse. Hey, we're, we're going to win this thing. I'm on the mountain and we're gonna win. You know what he does when he heals a leper or when he touches a person who's a paralytic or when he cares for the orphan or the children and he sets them on the lap? You know what he does? He says, we're gonna win this thing. It's already determined, we're gonna win this thing. You know what he does on the cross? He says, oh, we're winning. With outstretched, victorious arms on the cross, we have won. Satan thinks he's got me, but he won. You know what happens when the earthquake happens and that curtain tears in two and he rises from the grave? He said, we've won. Now we just get to watch the game. We get to see what's gonna happen. It's like the, the victory, this is an old Oscar Skullman uh, quote, the, the victory was already determined on D-Day. That was the death blow to the enemy. Now we just have to get to V-Day, but we know V-Day is coming. Friends, if you're believers, you don't have to be hard-hearted. We have a gospel prescription that reminds us that we're adopted sons and daughters, and Christ has already sealed the victory for us, and we will win. So why can you not be loving and patient 
and kind and gracious and hopeful and take yourselves a little less seriously. I say this to my church all the time. If you take God seriously, you'll take yourself less seriously. If you don't take God seriously, you'll take yourself more seriously. But angels can fly because they take themselves lightly, as G.K. Chesterton say. That's the reason why they can fly around, because they live in the presence of the king. Last point, a lack of hope makes us close-minded. What we need then, well, I'll give that to you a second. I gotta keep you teased out. A lack of hope makes us close-minded. John chapter 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I am going there to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Can you show us the way? Just give us directions. We can make it on our own. (laughs) Jesus answered, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I don't know how you read scripture, but one of the things that's helped me in life is learning to read scripture with more of my right side of my brain than my left side of my brain. To read it creatively. So I wanna read this again. And I want you to imagine that Jesus is speaking to these disciples who are fretting, who are worried, who are closed-minded of what might happen. Their world and the Romans and all of these things are kind of crunching down upon them and they're not sure what's going to happen. And I want you to imagine that Jesus is giving this to them, not in the stern, do not let your hearts be troubled. Imagine he's saying this, to these disciples in that closed door room with a smile and a smirk because he knows. <laughs> Don't let your hearts be troubled. Maybe he even chuckled before he said it. <laughs> Don't. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. Hey, my father's house. There's many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, and you, Peter, and you, John, and you, Zebedee, and you, Seven Rivers, if I go there to prepare a place for you, I'll come back. I'll take you with me so that you might be where I am. You know the way to the place I am going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And that's when Jesus went, I told you. Uh, No, he didn't. He went, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So friends, a lack of hope can make us closed-minded. What we need is a reformed imagination. Dostoevsky puts it this way, to dream about what heaven might be like. And Dostoevsky says, I believe, uh, he was a 
Prussian writer who wrote The Brothers Karamazov's great book, if you have time to read it. I believe like a child that suffering will be healed and made up for, that all the humiliating absurdity of human contradictions will vanish like a pitiful mirage, like the despicable fabrication of the impotent and infinitely small Euclidean mind of man. Don't worry about all that, but I love long quotes. That in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will suffice for all hearts, for comforting all resentment, all resentments, for the atonement of all the crimes of humanity, of all the blood they shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify all that has happened. And the character in the Brothers Karamazov, as Dostoevsky writes, says, I believe this like a child, that our God is so big, and our God is so great, and our hope is on this fact that somehow, some way, he's gonna make all things new and wipe every tear from our eyes, and it will not only be possible to forgive, but to justify what's happened. Um, one closing story, and then we'll be done. Uh, I, get to go, I get the privilege of going to the Masters a lot because I'm from Greenville, and there's still badges floating around. The Masters is a big golf tournament, in case you didn't know. And I used to work in Augusta, and there's a lot of badges floating around Augusta. So it won't last for a long time, but for right now, I get the privilege to go, not every year, but almost. They just built this place called Berkman's Place because uh, Augusta National just has more money than they know what to do with, so they just buy stuff. And it's this beautiful kind of corporate thing. And you, if you're lucky enough to get a badge to go into the Masters, that's one thing. To get a badge to go into Berkman's Place, uh, the price tag is about 20 grand. It's a, cor it's a corporate junket, right? That's the way it works. I've never been there. But I say that to every church, just in case there's somebody who's connected. <laughs> Got to shoot your shot. I took my son uh, two years ago. He wanted to meet Rory McIlroy. And so we went and we met Rory, uh, which was wonderful. We were walking out by Berkman's place. Um, and we were kind of on this big highway, nobody was there, and there was this guy trying to get into Berkman's place, and the security guard stopped him, and he said, you can't come in here. And he said, well, I have this badge. And he said, no, you can't come in here because you can't bring any drinks in there and you have that beer. And the guy said, okay. So he walked, so I heard that happen, and he walked over to the other side of the concourse where people were walking, about from me to that first pew, and the security guard was watching him, and the security guard said, Hey, what are you doing? And at that point, I stopped my son, and I said, let's watch this. Let's see what's gonna happen. The guard said, what are you doing? He said, I know how much that beer cost, and I know how much a ticket into this costs, where there's more beer than you could ever ask or imagine, and all the pleasures that come with it. Why would you stand outside the gates and finish that beer when you can come in right now? And I thought, I, I didn't say anything, but I thought, I'm not sure what's about to happen, but this is gonna be a great sermon illustration, one way or the other. <laughs> and the guy looked at him, looked at the security guard, I'll never forget this, and poured out his beer. 
and walked right in. And when he got to the security guard, the security guard had said, come on in the gates. Come on in the gates. Look, why, why are we going to stand outside on the other side, sipping our sorrows and whatever our pleasure it is? This is not a thing about alcohol or not. But why are we going to long for all of the things of this world that we think we're going to pleasure and longing when we can walk through and imagine ourselves in the gates of heaven where we can feast on Christ instead of the sound bites of culture, when we can hope for heaven rather than something else? It's a reformed imagination of what God would do. Now, here's your homework. Three things. Number one, I want to ask you, first of all, what are your dreams for you? What are your dreams for you? What do you want to see? When was the last time you thought about that? What do you want to see God do in your life? What do you want to see God do in your life? Like I said, there's no statute of limitations on sanctification. Have you thought about the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, the next year, the next month? I don't know how you pray, but one of the ways I pray, I don't have time to explain it, but each day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I have something that I'm praying that I want God to do in my life. Give me more wisdom. Give me more holiness. Give me more patience. Give me more joy. What is it that you want to see God do? What's your dream? Have you lost hope for yourself? Or what's your dream of what God might do through the hope of the gospel, what God might do in your life? Hey, you're retired? Congratulations. What are you going to do with that? What's the dream of how God might change you? You just became an empty nester and you're scared to death because you hadn't talked to your wife in 20 years? I get it. What's your dream? What's God going to do? You're in high school? What's your dream for what God might do with you in college? What might God do with you in life? What's your dream? Think about it. Write it down. Pray about it. Put it in. Here's number two in reconciling relationships, because that's what we're talking about. What's your dream for others? You got a friend or a spouse. This is so powerful if you do this. You come to somebody, not in a, like a passive aggressive way, but you come to somebody and you say, hey, you know what? I believe you could be one of the most powerful encouragers in the world. I, I believe I've seen this little seed in your life. I, you are so gifted in business. I think you could mentor other men. Uh, you're so gifted as a businesswoman. There's not many businesswomen around. You know, I, I think you could... I think you can mentor these younger women on how to follow Jesus in this male-dominated field. Uh, you know, you could say to some sophomore, like I just said to my son, hey, son, you know what? It's time for you to be a leader. Quit getting people to feed into you. There's this fifth grader who is, adores you, and I want you to spend some time with him. Think about what you could do in his life. Richard Needham, and I use this in weddings too, he says you, you marry three people. The person you think they are, the person they think they are, and the person they will become as a result of being married to you. <laughs> Who are your friends, your sons, your daughters? Uh, who are your coworkers, the guys and girls on your soccer team? You don't play soccer, I don't know what y'all do. 
the guys are, who will they be as a result of you being in their lives? And then lastly, just dream about heaven. Meditate on it. It's fine to watch the news, watch it. But don't watch it more than you're meditating on heaven. It's fine to check the stock market. It's fine to check your Robin Hood account. Do it. But remember to meditate on heaven. Or as it says in Colossians, if you've been raised with Christ, set, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with him in glory. In the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would create such a deep hope that you would keep us from being short-sighted and closed-minded and hard-hearted because that's what the lack of hope does for our lives. Instead, give us this eschatological realization that we're talking with eternal people when we talk with anybody that we come in contact with. Give us this gospel prescription that we are your sons and daughters and that you will win the battle and have. And Father, uh, remind us of this hope of heaven, of who we are in you. May we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Your name.